Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today about the ROI of trustable identities. It's my privilege to be talking with Mike Osborne, Principal with Booz Allen Hamilton. Mike, it's a pleasure to talk with you again. Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. Let's just tackle this topic right up front, Mike. Trustable identities. What's the problem we're trying to solve with this concept? It's a really simple problem, Tom, and it's one that has been solved for so long in the commercial environment that I think there are probably many people that would be surprised that it is a problem. But quite frankly, the question is, how can the federal government interact with someone online when they're not able to directly authenticate who that person is or know that they're dealing with the right person on the other end? The inability to authenticate customers, as as people would uh, describe it, or authenticate users of a service has been the big blockade that has kept government from moving more services online and from being able to take advantage of the digital discipline that is imposed by a process where you can understand uh, who you're dealing with at the front end of an online transaction and then manage that through in a systems environment so you don't have to rely on paper or manual process. So let's put ourselves in the position of someone within an agency that's going to make a case for trustable identities. Give us a sense of what some of the potential hard and soft benefits are of deploying trustable online identities. Well, again, I mean, the hard benefits are are very simple in terms of uh, the reduction in operating costs. Um, So there was a a general accounting office report uh, about the uh, IRS a couple years ago. And they went through the review and they made a determination on a cost basis of what does it cost the IRS to deal with an individual customer through a variety of methods and methodologies. So the cost of an in-person transaction, in essence, was more than $28, while the cost of interacting with that person online was $0.13. So at the first instance, the same kind of cost efficiencies that have been so prevalent in the commercial environment for the last 10 or 15 years are cost savings that the federal government has not been able to take advantage of because they've not been able to know who they were dealing with, therefore they couldn't make these online services available. So from a hard hard savings perspective, there's a wide variety of operational costs uh, in that uh, mode. From a soft cost, though, there's another big target that the government's been focusing on also, and that is what's uh, referred to as improper payments. And those are just, in essence, errors. Uh, it could be an error where you've been paid too much. It's, it could be an error where you've received too little benefits, but in either case, it's an error. And there was a new legislation last year called the Improper Payment Elimination and Recovery Act that put in some mandates to put more focus and granular uh, transparency around the kinds of problems that that represents. And if you go to that website, paymentaccuracy.gov, what it shows is in the top 10 programs, the federal government has more than $125 billion a year in errors. And so, the again, the ability to interact online in a digital framework in the way that commercial businesses have been able to do represents a tremendous potential for savings against that $125 billion a year error bucket. Well, Mike, you make a compelling case. I guess my follow-up question for you is, okay, understanding the benefits, how do we get there? 
Well, that's probably the most exciting part uh, from my perspective, and that is for a long time this has been a really difficult problem. It's not that no one's been trying to work on this. There were programs earlier in the decade referred to as e-authentication. There have been e-gov programs. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, I think a lot of people be shocked to find out that the IRS's first online project, their first online pilot, was 25 years ago. And yet today, it's not possible for me to go online and get my tax transcript directly from the IRS so that I could then forward that on electronically to my mortgage company when I'm trying to refinance my house. So while there have been efforts before, no one's really been able to crack the code of how do how does the government authenticate that user. And again, the, the, these efforts uh, were based on different technologies and different approaches. The big paradigm shift, though, that occurred in around 2008, 2009, is that the leadership in the government looked at the world and they said, wow, in a world of hundreds of millions of smartphones and social networks like Facebook with 600 million people online, everybody's already online. <laughs> and so there's a real opportunity for us to just take advantage of the things that the consumers, are, the users are already doing. And so they implemented what they call the trust framework. And what the trust framework does, in essence, is it represents a fundamental paradigm shift where the government said, yeah, for our own employees, for the 10 or 20 million people that work for us, we're going to require credentials that we issue. They may be hard tokens or hard cards or smart cards or whatever else. But guess what? For the other 200 million people in America that go online who we don't interact with on a regular basis and who are not our employees and we cannot control the way that they want to interact with us, we're going to rely on the kind of credentials that they're already used to using and the technology that they already use with their bank or their telephone company or the online service providers that they're already dealing with. And so through this trust framework, they established a model that would allow private companies to issue credentials that are deemed to be comparable to the kind that the government would have issued if it had tried to issue those credentials. And so the great paradigm shift that occurs is, number one, we don't have to worry about a national ID card because the government has basically said, we're out of the identity business. We don't want to be involved in it. In fact, we want to see the commercial enterprises lead this effort, and we're looking for a vibrant marketplace of private companies that can issue these kinds of credentials and a vibrant marketplace of a wide variety of those kinds of credentials so that we, the government, can allow individuals to use them in the way that the individual wants to do in, in the way that the individual wants to control their relationship. And we'll simply rely on what the commercial marketplace can provide and what the users choose to use. So the how do we get there is now a very simple process in 2011 because this trust framework is now part of the federal enterprise architecture and it's been there since 2009. The National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace was announced on April 15th with a great deal of energy from the White House and, and the senior leadership across government that says we want to see an ecosystem of companies that can provide these kind of credentials and that's pretty exciting. And then more importantly, on April 15th, the other thing that happened was the federal budget for fiscal 11 was finally approved, which means that now, between now and the end of September, there's more than a billion dollars that we've identified of projects to do things like put your student loan online, allow you to interact online with the IRS, things of that nature. So projects that were already approved have already been designed, but they were designed at a time before these private credentials were available. 
So the great opportunity for agencies today, right now today, is to look at those projects that they now have been given the money to go pursue and to take advantage of this new private credential model, the trust framework model, as a way to implement those projects, to fulfill those projects at a lower cost with lower risk in a way that's more convenient for the users. Well, Mike, it sounds like a clear path, but as, you, as we both know, things rarely are. What are some of the <laughs> obstacles that agencies might encounter or speed bumps they might hit along the way? Well, I think, well, right now today, immediately in, in this snapshot in time, um, one of the, one of the um, roadblocks is the full trust framework and the certification of what they call identity providers at all the various levels is not 100% complete. So the uh, Federal Identity Credentialing and Access Management Subcommittee, which referred to as FICAM, is still working through the process of certifying uh, what they call trust framework providers, and then those trust framework providers are still working with private companies like banks and telephone companies and communications companies and online providers and, and people of that nature. So there's work to be done there, but, but the challenge is that um, business being business, without the demand side represented by the government wanting to take advantage of those credentials, it's, it's hard for the commercial players to continue to make progress going forward. So there's been a, there's this potential for a little bit of an impasse if people don't take the advantage in the next four or five months to take it, to, to begin to move forward in this kind of uh, model. So that's, that's a potential impediment, but it's one that people are ready to overcome and there's great focus and energy from the White House down to try to solve that issue. The other impediment, quite frankly, is that people are busy. Um, you know, the government has, uh, has issues <laughs> from a financial perspective. There's, there's probably more focus on the debt ceiling today than there is focus on how do we take advantage of private credentials. Um, we live in a mindset where agencies feel like they don't have the resources they need to go ahead and pursue projects. This represents a new technology and a, a new paradigm that has, was not there two years ago. So you have the, the normal kind of large enterprise organizational issues of how do you get the elephant to dance rapidly. Um, and so those are the kind of issues that we're seeing. But, you know, I think to the credit of the administration, they've, they've continued to have this drumbeat of, of saying to the agencies, we're very serious about this. So whether it was the Open Government Initiative in 2008, which was one of the first things that the president did when he came into office and he said, we want to see more transparency in government, we want to provide more access to government services, and we want to have a better experience for citizens and users when they come to interact with the government. And he said that on day one. And he followed up on that with uh, initiatives out of the federal CIO office, whether that was the, the broad base of the Open Government Initiative itself, the list of 25 key priorities, the push to move applications to the cloud. So the CIO's office has been doing a great deal of work. As I mentioned before, FICAM put the trust framework in place in the federal enterprise architecture. Even two weeks ago, we saw a new uh, executive order come out of the White House focused on customer service and pushing agencies to hold themselves up to commercial benchmarks and to use commercial technologies, including these interactive technologies, as a way to provide a better level of service at lower cost to the government and with more convenience to the user. So I, I think that there's a great deal of effort, there's a great deal of opportunity right now. Um, and so while there are impediments that people are going to have to continue to work through, they are uh, very minor impediments compared to the significant issues that would have existed five years ago. A couple of the related topics I'd like to take up with you, and one of them is private sector credentials. What's the case for private sector credentials? You can make the case based on security. Uh, every day you pick up the paper and, you, you know, there's another 
headline of where some hacker has done something, uh, gotten access to people's private information, or there's been a security breach of information. Uh, the most recent one, I think, was one of the major banks to the tune of a few million dollars. And so you could come at this from the cybersecurity uh, problem um, and make the case for why, in the commercial sector, we need something better than a username and password. You could pick it up from the perspective of personal convenience. Um, you know, it's, it's not pleasant to have to manage a different username and password across all the sites that people are now connecting to in 2011 compared to the situation in 2002 when maybe you might have had one or two passwords. We're way past that scenario where username and passwords make any sense. Uh, you can pick it up from the commercial enterprise side where you can look at the, uh, the cost to that business for abandoned transactions because by the time I get all ready to buy something from an airplane ticket to a pair of shoes and I realize I've forgotten my password and it's too inconvenient to go back and figure out what to do and so I just bail out of that transaction and I move over to a different company because I can remember my password over there which represents a, a cost to the first business who's lost that transaction to a competitor. Um, or, or you can pick it up from the standpoint of the government when the government cannot interact with citizens online. So I think that the, the case for private credentials is that it provides a lower risk way to interact with individuals. It provides greater security for the individual, a potential to protect their privacy in ways that they're not able to protect it today, and then a significant reduction in the cost um, to the enterprise, whether that's a commercial enterprise or, in this case, the federal government, since they're willing to take advantage of the credentials issued by these private entities. Another topic I want to ask you about is the trust button. I've read some of what you've written on this topic, and you've discussed the, the value of trust buttons on a site. Could you outline that for us, please? Sure. The, the trust button is um, its a concept that uh, we've come up with in consortium with a variety of other companies that are all working together to try to solve this problem. And what it really represents is a simple, generic way to uh, allow the total internet customer base to move from this username and password experience to a new, more secure, more trustable experience in a way that is seamless and easy. So the best way to understand, I think, is in reference to uh, an, an alternative way of doing a similar thing, which is uh, what Facebook's done with Facebook Connect. So I inside of their business, in a proprietary way that they control, which is uh, got its own issues associated with security and privacy controls and things of that nature, but, but to their credit, they looked at this problem and they said, well, we've got 500 million or 600 million users and we're integrated across uh, many other sites and have an ecosystem that we've built up inside of our core business. Maybe we'll just solve this for our own customers and, and you may have seen it in your own experience across the internet. What they did is they made it very easy for, for another website, um, you know, mysite.com, not to pick on anybody or provide or any preference to anybody. So it makes it very easy for me if I was a website operator to say, I want to make it easier for you to register at my site. I want to make it easier for you to log into my site. And I, quite frankly, don't even care about managing this whole identity framework anyway. So I can put this Facebook Connect button here at mysite.com. And when you come here, instead of going through the normal registration or login process, you can simply click on that Facebook Connect button, and I will reach back to Facebook and ask Facebook to authenticate you and provide me with the information that I need to know who you are, and you can kind of magically get logged into my site. 
So the trust button idea is in essence a similar version of that experience, but it's one that's built on the governmentally approved control models around identity, which puts in place a security model that is uh, more secure and built to standards that are of, of higher degree of security than other proprietary things, and that requires the identity providers to recognize certain privacy controls that are not generally being uh, adhered to by a commercial site. So think of the trust button as a similar way to register and log in to a new site in a way that's simple and easy, but it also provides greater security, respects your identity, and respects your privacy. And by putting that on, a, on one of the 24,000 websites that the federal government operates, what it allows an agency to do is then to say, well, I can pre-certify, I can pre-select which identity providers I want to do business with here at the Department of Education. And I can set up the trust button in a way that when you click on it on my site, you'll be presented with a list of optional identity providers who can give you a credential that I'm willing to accept here at my site. And the power of the trust button is that the exact same trust button experience can exist across all 24,000 websites in the federal space on, on sites that operate in the more than 1,100 data centers that the federal government operates. And yet, when you as an individual click on it, you're always going to be presented with the right options for the right types of credentials as required by the service that you're trying to take advantage of. So we think there's great potential for the federal government, particularly at this point when their real objective is, how do we make it easier to interact with, with citizens? How do we reduce our total costs? How do we eliminate these kinds of improper payments? And by allowing you to use the same kind of credential, or in some cases, the exact same credential that you use at the Department of Veteran Affairs, and you could use it when you go to the Department of Education to apply for a student loan, that's a real convenience to the consumer. It provides the potential for great cost savings to the federal government, and it provides an experience that, again, um, generates the same kind of privacy controls and security controls and adheres to the identity standards that are already in place by the federal government. Well, Mike, we talked about a lot here. We talked about trustable identities and private sector credentials as well as the trust button. If you were to boil it down into next steps, what is it that agencies really need to do now to get started down this path that we've talked about? I think the key thing is um, for the agency to look at the opportunity and understand it in the same way that there was a, uh, a fundamental paradigm shift when the Cold War ended. And it was very easy for all of us to think about the peace dividend that would become available when we no longer had to think about, first, let's go build a tank, or first, let's go build a, a battleship, because the fundamental nature of the environment had changed, and there were huge savings because we no longer had to do the kinds of things that we did before. In this instance, there's a potential for this trust dividend, because we no longer have to think about a paper-based process first. We no longer have to think about the fact that we're going to manually process interactions between the citizens of the users of our services. And in fact, we can recognize that in 2011 and 2012, 200 million people go online every single day in, in America. 200 million people already have some aspect of credentials that are perfectly acceptable to commercial businesses who are engaged in the exact same kind of transactions that I would be engaged in in my agency. And the federal government has now made it possible for me to take advantage of those credentials in a similar way and because I can do that, I can immediately think about new ways to fulfill my mission. 
I can see my cost of operations be reduced dramatically. I can see my the, the nature of the improper payments that may afflict my organization through all the various paper processes that I have. I can see those be eliminated dramatically. And more importantly, I can begin to think about new ways to interact with my customers to do the things that I really come to work to do every day, which is provide them with certain benefits, to provide them with certain information, or to engage with them across different transactions that are important to them. And I can do it in a way that's safer, has more security, protects their privacy better, and is more convenient to them. That's a pretty big win. And the opportunity to go ahead and take advantage of that win really exists between now and the end of September because the fiscal 11 budget is there, the projects are there, and all I have to do is be able to effectively connect the dots and rethink my projects to take advantage of this great new opportunity with which I've been presented. Mike, that's well said. As always, I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. The topic has been Trustable Identities. I've been talking with Mike Osborne, Principal with Booz Allen Hamilton. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.